There you go. Your, your monitor's not. It will. Basically. Talk. This is it. This is the end. The end. And uh, it could stand for crossed sticks. Mark. Revelation. Mark the sign. Signal. Monument. In my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Make my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let me live that I may praise you, and may your laws sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. All right, good stuff. Here's what we got for prayer requests today. Jill, Jill Newell, she's up in Charlotte. So if somebody's watching and uh, they're in the area, she's really needing the job. She's to the point where she really needs to get one, and uh, she's uh, uh, just asking for prayer for that. But if somebody is in the area, then uh, maybe you could find somebody that could hire a lady. And that would be pretty wonderful. Then Becky, uh, who's been doing better, and her husband's shoulder's been getting better. Then she got some new physical problems. And so it's causing her emotionally some stress, too. So we don't keep Becky in prayer. And then Jim's father-in-law is under attack. He's seeing and hearing things, and he worries a lot about death. Okay, But he hasn't come to Jesus. Instead, he continues on in Shintoism, which is... Uh, uh, Shinto, it's uh, a religion It's predominantly in Japan, but... His uh, wife is from Taiwan, and so uh, he's from Taiwan, and apparently Shintoism is there, which I didn't realize. And so uh, anyway, uh, he's asked for specific prayers for him. And then Janet Bo, I just, right before I walked out the door today, uh, I got an email from her son, and she says she's got bad pain in the elbow, and she's got red splotches all over her arm, and they're going to the hospital, and he took a picture of it, and it's just amazing. I mean, her arm is all splotchy, and her elbow hurts, so something's going on, and we'll hope to hear something good about that before or when I get home tonight. I asked him to go ahead and let me know, but finally, we have Steve Blazing, who attends here, but he's been up in Indiana all day long with heart tests, and so... What's that? Cleveland, Cleveland. Cleveland. Thank Cleveland you. Cleveland Clinic. Clinic. And yeah, so he's, he's been up there all day. All day long. That's why I emailed him too, and uh, that's what he said. So, but Cleveland Clinic. Anyway, so we'll. All right, good. We'll go ahead and pray for these people and get started. Heavenly Father, you heard the prayer requests here, and you know the others that are unstated that uh, people may have on their hearts or in their families or. Whatever is troubling them, we would just lift up all the people that uh, right now are hurting in your presence and that you would be with them and help them through their difficult times. And Lord, we certainly thank you for the many blessings of this life. And uh, we also thank you that you've continued to keep our president strong through this uh, most challenging time, this unfair time which has been levied against him. And we would pray that you would uh, uh, just bring this uh, circus to an end quickly so that he can get back to the business of this country without this giant distraction. And Lord, uh, we would ask you would continue to frustrate the, uh, the people on the left until the uh, elections and just may your hand be upon this nation for good. But we'll leave that in your hand and we'll just pray that uh, whatever happens, you will be glorified through it. 
but we certainly do pray for our president. Lord, we uh, ask that you bless this time here, and we ask that you uh, uh, keep us with sound doctrine and uh, on a straight and level path with your precious word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. 35, which is a paragraph. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. Eight, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, that's a fact. At least, I think that's a fact for me. I don't know if all of you feel that way, but... There's not a day I don't think, gosh, I'd rather be with the Lord. This verse finishes the interrupted verse, which began at 5-6. If taken together, without the insert, they would say, so we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And then this verse, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. However, verse 7 was inserted as a very appropriate thought before coming to the words of verse 8. This verse literally reads, to be away from the home of the body, but to be at home with the Lord. That's the pulpit commentary's translation. The change from at home to present in the translation began with William Tyndale and has been used ever since then. The thought here is almost identical to that found in Philippians 1, 21 through 25, and especially verse 23, with the exception that here he depart, desires to not depart but rather to be done with the body without the need for dying. In other words, it is a strong case in and of itself for both the imminence of Christ's return, which Paul thought may even happen in his life, and for the doctrine of the rapture. Okay, if he's saying that he doesn't want to be, be done with the body, then obviously he's expecting the Lord to come and take him, which he clearly speaks of on several other occasions in his epistles. 1 Corinthians 15 1 Thessalonians 4 in particular, okay, rapture verses. Once again, I say it every time I think about them. If you read those verses without anybody ever telling you what they do or don't say, you just read them at face value, and somebody says to you, what does that say? There's no doubt what they would say. Well, there's a time when we won't be here, when we were, we were here, but we were suddenly not here. Nobody could come to another conclusion. They have to have the rapture trained out of them. No doubt about it. I, every time I come to a thought of those verses, that is what comes to my mind. There is no way in the world you could read those verses and not come to that conclusion. But people want to deny the, the rapture for, you know, probably the reason is because it goes back to, you know, I've never really thought through why people deny the rapture, but probably it's because of uh, replacement theology. The church has been here all this time, and uh, uh, if Israel is really back in the uh, picture, then that means that their doctrine has been wrong all of this time. And all of a sudden, the rapture makes sense, and we can't have that. And so they just stick with their bad theology. That would be my guess, but I'd have to really think it through to give you a, a good answer there. But it is a argument for the rapture. The idea, the idea conveyed in this verse is described by Charles, El, Charles Ellicott. Oh, gosh, I can't even speak right now. Ugh. What this, uh, let me read that again. The idea conveyed in this verse is described by Charles Ellicott quite well. We are content, he says, if death comes before the coming of the Lord to accept death. For even though it does not bring with it the glory of the resurrection body, it does make us at home with Christ among the souls who wait for the resurrection. So you can see Charles Ellicott, who's quite some time ago, 
was under the impression that uh, the people are waiting for a resurrection. Whatever uh, absent from the body, present with the Lord means, it doesn't mean that you have a body and that you're there with the Lord right now. And he goes way back a couple hundred years. So what this tells us is that if we die before the rapture, we will be at home with the Lord, but not in a glorified body. It is the resurrection which brings that about. Until then, our souls will be kept safely by the Lord as we await the glorious day rapture. That's not sound, but that's what an interim body is. They're not sound, and there's nothing written by Paul to indicate such a state. The order is, one, this present life, two, either death in this life or rapture, and three, A, if death, then our soul is present with Christ awaiting the resurrection body, or 3b, if rapture, we translate directly from this life to the next in the twinkling of an eye. Those are the only options that are given in the Bible. Now, you can argue all day long what it means when it says absent from the body, present from the Lord. And you can take your own verses and you can pull them out of context or you can try to formulate a little bit of a hermeneutic out of it. But I will tell you that there is nothing definitive either way. Paul says that those who are in Christ, when they die, do what? Well, they say, he says they sleep. sleep. He calls it sleep, okay? So you can argue believers are asleep, meaning they just, they close their eyes and then the rapture happens and they wake up right at that point. And it was as if you were asleep. I would argue for that. People say, well, that's a heresy. That's soul sleep and blah, blah, blah. That's not a heresy, okay? A heresy is something that will keep somebody from being saved. That may be poor doctrine. It may be good doctrine, okay? But all that means is that when it says absent from the body, present with the Lord, that means that he has you kept safely. Everybody got that? Whatever that means. If you're asleep with the Lord, you are present with the Lord. All it means is he, he has control of you. To say that you are up there in heaven playing on harps or something doesn't make any sense because why would you be in one state just to be called to another state? Our existence here is one existence and the next existence is with Christ. And that's all the Bible speaks of. So anything else you have to read into the Bible, but I don't argue it. It's not worth, it's just not worth arguing over that. But I would be of the uh, opinion that when you die, absent from the body, present with the Lord means that you are dead, you are asleep, and you will suddenly be awake when the Lord brings you home at the rapture. That is my my thought on that. I don't go any further. I'm not here to argue with people. And if you want to believe differently, you, that's fine. Okay. You have your verses. I have mine. What's that? Yeah. Oh, that's exactly right. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed to us belong to us and are, are revealed to us belong to us and our children. Exactly. So there you go. I mean, it's fine. Whatever. It's not something to argue over because guess what? It hasn't happened and nobody's come back from that state right. to tell us what it's going to be like. Okay. All we have is a couple of verses that we can infer. And you don't want to use verses from Jesus parables. You don't want to use verses from the Old Testament. You can get ideas of what's going on from them. Okay. But those are not prescriptive verses. They're telling us something, but they may not be telling us what we think they're telling us. Okay. People use the parables all the time to prove, uh, you know, a rapture or no rapture or whatever. Jesus isn't speaking to the church when he's speaking to Israel in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay. So that's just not really good handling of scripture. But anyway, life application, the doctrine of the rapture is so clearly stated in scripture that if you dismiss it, you have been misapplying scripture. Remedy? Stop misapplying scripture. Okay, 5-9. So, we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home with the body or away from it. 
Okay, see, this one is in the opposite order. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Therefore, is given as a summary of his thoughts from the beginning of the chapter. He has been speaking of being alive in this earthly body and also of dying, at which time we will receive our eternal heavenly body. In order to describe either state, he says, whether present or absent, the Greek here literally reads whether at home or away from home. To be at home means to be with Christ. To be away from home means to be separated <coughs> from him, as we currently are. Regardless of our state, he says that we make it our aim, dot, 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 to be well-pleasing to him. The idea is that we should strive with all diligence to be pleasing to the Lord. It should be our one and only ambition, something I fail at every day. This was the life of the apostle, and it should be our desire as well. In our current existence, we have to really work at this. Trials, fatigue, stress, and so much more gets in our way of accomplishing this, as does a twisted tongue, as you saw a couple minutes ago. I, I don't know what was the matter with that sentence, but I tried to read it three times, and it just kept coming out backwards. And dyslexia will do that to you. You get words that are hard to produce or pronounce side by side, and then they get turned around, then it gets really bad. So anyway, I don't have terrible dyslexia, but I do have it. And uh, poor Chris, who's at the mission work with us, does too. So yeah, when we yell at each other, we're always yelling backwards. Okay, anyway. Um, yeah, so anyway, uh, through constant prayer, fixing our eyes on him, we are enabled to do so. Life application, what is it that mot motivates you? We tend to exert the majority of our energy and our time on that which we find most important. If it is the Lord, then you will exert these things in order to be pleasing to him. This doesn't mean that this is done at the expense of other things, such as work. <laughs> Rather, it means that we will incorporate Jesus into our other tasks. Our life will become a living sacrifice to him as we earnest, earnestly strive to be pleasing to him. Okay, that, once again, you know, when you're at work, you need to work because if you're talking about Jesus in evangelizing people, you're actually robbing your boss. Okay, that doesn't mean that you can't incorporate Christ into your life while you're working so that people say, I want to know what makes him happy all the time. Okay, I want to know why he never seems to be worried about what's going on over in China or over in, you know, wherever. It's because you're not worried about those things. Christ is in control of this world. He'll take care of these things. And if you're there pulling on your face and nervous all the time, people aren't going to want to come to you when they have a difficult time in their life. They're going to ignore you. They're going to say, he's already a basket case. Why would I ask him for help? So be a living sacrifice, incorporate Christ into your life, and be sound in your theology, and people will see that. Okay, 510. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Oh, the judgment seat of Christ. Oh, where else is that mentioned? 1 Corinthians 5, I mean, sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, and where else? 1410 of Romans. 1410 of Romans, and where else? 1 Corinthians chapter, anybody? 3, hey, good job, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, it was Yeah, 1 Corinthians W. So we'll go there really quick, and we'll take these together. Okay, we've got uh, 1 Corinthians 3, give me a second here. And it says there, uh, we'll start up in uh, verse 10. According to the grace of God, which has given me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, which he says is what? The foundation is Christ. That's right, okay? Um, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each 
One, take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this, that means you're out there, you're a Christian, and you are building on the foundation. Okay, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. Here's uh, eternal salvation all over it. It says, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. We'll talk about that in our sermon on eternal salvation coming up in four weeks. Okay, but for now, we're in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're reading verse 10, which Jim just read. It says, always caring about, uh, is it 10 you read? Yes. Yeah, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Okay, it says there, um, the words here should be perfectly understandable on their surface. The verse is not speaking to unbelievers at all. They will receive a different judgment. One of judgment of, you've got judgment for us, which is a judgment of, begins with S and ends with N, and it has salvation in the middle. Anyone? Yeah, salvation. We are having a judgment for salvation. Anybody that's not in Christ will have a judgment for condemnation or damnation. Exactly. Okay, there you go. So our judgment is one of salvation. Paul notes that we must all, meaning all believers, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the bima seat of Christ. In Greek, bima indicates an elevated place ascended by steps, a throne, a tribunal. Charles Ellicott notes that it is the tribunal of the Roman magistrate raised high above the level of the basilica or hall at the end of which it stood. The word was transferred when basilicas were turned into churches to the throne of the bishop, and in classical Greek, had been used not for the judge's seat, but for the orator's pulpit. At the time of Paul's writing, though, it had the original Roman sense of being the place of tribunal. This is what each Christian will face, and the reason is that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Every one of you, if you're a believer in Christ, I'm not here to question your salvation. I'm here to tell you that you need to be working for Christ because everything that you do, everything will be judged, either good or bad, okay? So there you go with that. As noted, this is not a judgment for either salvation or condemnation. That was done when? At the cross of Jesus Christ, and you believed in that. When you believed, your judgment was done as far as condemnation or salvation. It is done. That is judicially declaring somebody not guilty. I don't know how people can misunderstand that and say, well, gee whiz, you can lose your salvation. But once again, four weeks from now, we'll talk about that particular issue. That was determined when the individual received Jesus by faith, the salvation or condemnation. It's done. Okay, as Paul notes about every person who is in Christ, he says in Romans chapter 8, Let me get there, if I can get this page turned, okay. And then in verse 10, he says, And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The judgment which Paul speaks of here is one of works done in the body while in Christ. Not works for salvation, but works because of salvation. He speaks of this same judgment, as I said a minute ago, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I wrote down here verses 12 through 15. I think I started in verse 10. Anyway, at that time we shall stand before the Lord and he will search us out. This will be a complete evaluation right down to the motives of the heart. Nothing will be overlooked, and the thought of divine reckoning is an appropriate way of explaining what will occur. He has saved us. We will be evaluated based on what we have done with that salvation, and we will be judged according to how we responded to it in our Christian life. Everything from the moment you believed will be judged. The same word translated as appear in this verse is traveled as reveal in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 where it says this 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness think of your hearts and reveal the counsels of the hearts then each one's praise will come from God everything you're doing whatever it is he is looking at your heart he doesn't care about what you do outwardly that's not important he cares about what is going on in your heart when you do what's done outwardly like I said, you can go out and you can do some, something nice for somebody as a pretense, and the Lord sees through that. Or you can do something which nobody else sees, and you're doing it with the right heart. And if nobody else sees it, he has evaluated your heart, and he says, I think that was a good thing. So there you go. And he won't say, I think it was. He'll say, it is or it isn't, because there's no, I have to think this one through. He knows. Anyway, in other words, the secret things of the heart will not be unknown to the Lord. His evaluation will search us out completely. And it is with this judgment that we will receive our eternal rewards or losses. And with all certainty, there will be a standard by which we will be judged. It will not be arbitrary. It will not be unfair. But it will be perfectly just and it will be righteous. For those who have adhered to his word, there will be reward. For those who have disobeyed, there will be loss. That's all there is to it. You know, I was going through the... Uh, uh, sermon, either this Sunday's sermon or one four weeks from now today. I go through two sermons on Thursdays. And anyway, one of them, I was saying that the law of Moses is God's standard. It doesn't matter that Gentiles aren't under the law of Moses. The law of Moses is what we'll be judged by. And the reason why that is because Christ was under the law of Moses. He is God's standard of judgment. He is the standard. And therefore, whether you're under the law and whether God's going to uh, you know, judge you by all 613 separate laws, and I'm talking about non-believers, it doesn't matter. What matters is that Christ is the standard. Christ lived under that law, and you must meet the standard that he met. Even if you weren't under the law of Moses, you have to be as perfect as he was. And so the law of Moses, whether you are under it or not, is still the standard, because Christ is the standard, and he is the embodiment of the law, pictured by the Ten Commandments being placed in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, as you know, is a picture of Christ. It's incorruptible wood, shatim wood. It's covered around with gold. The wood pictures his incorruptible humanity. The gold around it pictures his deity. Okay? And then on the top is the mercy seat, where the blood propitiation, the blood of atonement and the propitiation is made. Okay? And so those 
tablets inside reflect who Christ is, the embodiment of the law. That is our standard for judgment on humanity, whether you are under the law or not. That is our standard, okay? And from that point on, if you have met that standard because you, by faith, received Jesus Christ, then you have a new standard, and that is what did you do for Christ after receiving Christ? Does everybody see that? So we don't need to worry about the first one because it's done. The blood has been applied. We have received it, and we are saved. Deal done. I just, once again, if you think through the process of salvation, there's no other option but eternal salvation. There, it, logically, there is nothing else. The verses that people use to say, see, you can lose your salvation, are mishandled verses. Well, they use this one. Well, yeah, they can use this. They can use any one of them, but they pulled it out of its intended context. So, and we'll go through some of them. We'll go through a few of them in our uh, eternal salvation uh, sermon. But we're not going to go through all of them because you could spend all day refuting people playing scripture tennis and it's not worth it. All you do is you make your case logically. Why is it so? And once you see why it's so, then you don't need to worry about verses that you may not understand or that somebody has misapplied. They are incorrect. You don't even need to get into that aspect of it. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, let's see here. There will be loss if we disobey. There will be reward if we do good things, okay? Nobody will be able to complain that their judgment was unfair. They won't be able to do it at the great white throne, and they won't be able to do it here. Nobody will have any complaints when they stand before the Lord of creation. All will be satisfied with the results of the judgment that they receive. A little life application here. Oh, how shallow we are to trade heaven's riches for temporary gain. The word has been given, and we have been asked to pursue it and to adhere to it. How many stand in disobedience to it, supposing that their dismissal of what he has spoken will be ignored? I think of these preachers out there that stand in the pulpit that shouldn't be standing in the pulpit. You know what I'm thinking, so I'm not even going to say it. And they do it, and they think that they're going to get a reward for it. It ain't going to happen. The Lord will not say, the ends justified the means. It doesn't happen. The Lord is the beginning and the end. He already knows the ends. He doesn't need for us to have the means to get him where he knows things are going to go. It does not work that way. If you are disobedient to the Lord as a person in the pulpit, this is the rewards you are going to get. Zero. I don't care how much you do for him. Zero. Because you're disobedient in the act of supposedly doing something for the Lord. Okay, so let us not be so small-minded when we contemplate the Lord who judges. He's going to be perfectly fair. He's not going to say, okay, Charlie, what you did was great. You got three people to salvation, but you had to steal a car to get to the uh, thing to evangelize them. It doesn't work that way. The ends, end does not justify the means. In whatever you're doing, doesn't matter what you're doing, he is going to judge you based on how you did it, the intent of the heart, etc. Okay, 511. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are in plain, what we are is plain to God, and I hope that it is plain to you, to your conscience. Okay, that, that that's okay. It says the same thing though as this one did, but this one is a lot more um, uh, direct. He says, "Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men." Instead of what you said was, uh, read it again. Uh, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Well, terror is a little little stronger there. Um, yeah, oh yes. In the uh, previous verse, Paul noted that all believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is judgment for the saved, not for the lost, 
Understanding this, the word phobos, which is translated here as terror, is not what Paul is conveying. Rather, the word should be rendered as, Jim just read, fear. fear. Phobos is commonly used in scripture, sometimes positively in relation to God, but more often negatively of withdrawing from the Lord, meaning his will. Okay, that helps word studies evaluation of that. Christians, knowing that their judgment lies ahead, are to have reverential fear and awe at the strictness by which they will be judged. However, terror is not a part of this judgment. In Christ, there is no condemnation. With that in mind, we should each know that we will, in fact, be judged according to what we have done. And we should be, therefore, on guard to act in a right and proper manner at all times. It is because of this coming judgment that Paul and the other apostles, as they said, persuade men. It was their desire that those who had called on Christ not let their guard down as if there were no judgment at all coming upon them. And this lesson needs to be conveyed now by all who preach and teach the word. In many ways, the Christian world has come to believe that getting saved means that judgment is behind us. And it all is peachy between us and the Lord. Concerning salvation or condemnation, this is true, but that is not the end of the matter. To finish this thought, he writes that we are all well known to God. And I also trust that our, that I also trust all are well known in your consciences. Paul is not telling the Corinthians anything which contradicts their own status as apostles. They are not saying one thing and doing another. Rather, what they have been imploring in others, they have lived out among themselves. This is confirmed by his words from the previous chapter, back in 4, verse 2, where he says, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And there's another place where we know that this is true, because one of the apostles started to stray. And what happened? Galatians chapter 2, what happened? There was a confrontation because one of the apostles, let's read it just so you can know that Paul is not just saying one thing and doing another. They are living their lives properly. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm just going to read you the whole chapter. I've read it before, but we'll read it again. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was commanded to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage. What is bondage? He's going to say it explicitly elsewhere in this epistle. What is bondage? The word bondage, he is using it to describe something. The law of Moses, exactly right. Okay, okay. so he says um, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission for even an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But, from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. There you go, perfect example that when you stand before the Lord, it doesn't matter what color your hair was, it doesn't matter what color your skin was, he's not going to show any favoritism to anybody. 
okay, going on. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcision was to Peter, it's one gospel that's being told either to the Jews or the Gentiles, not two gospels. For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing I, which I also was eager to do. Here it is, verse 11. Now when Peter, who is Cephas, the guy that just gave him the right hand of fellowship, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, something that was totally forbidden he would do. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. Is Paul a Jew or not? Yes. He's a Jew. And he didn't get sidetracked by these people, but everybody else did. And so it shows you the distinction between the two. Everybody except Paul stood firm. He goes on. Um, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy because he was idle-struck by Peter. All right, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified or shall be justified. And I'll finish it up. But if we, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. He's speaking about what Christ did for him, imputed to him. The perfection of law is granted to him. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. That means absolutely nothing if you can be justified before God by the works of the law or by observing the law of Moses. In any way, shape, or form, that means that Christ died for nothing. Okay? And that takes us even farther. I'm gonna, I think we're probably going to get to this in this chapter, but I'll say it right now. That goes along with things like religious syncretism. Anybody know what syncretism is? It's the uniting of two different religions. Okay, I'm a Christian, but I'm also going to stick to, we were talking about a Shinto earlier. I'm going to stick to Shintoism. Or, you know, my wife is Buddhist, and so I'm going to go to the Buddhist temple on Sunday, and then I'm going to uh, be a Christian on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Okay, or, you know, my best friend is a Muslim, and I, I want to appease him as my friend, so I'm going to start going to the mosque, and I'm going to start worshiping Allah. 
God is a jealous God. The Lord is a jealous God. And he's not going to tolerate that in any way, shape, or form. I don't care what your idol is. I don't care if your idol is yourself, if it's money, if it's women, if it, I, it doesn't make any difference. Or if it's another religion that man has concocted in his head. There is one God, and he will not be favorable towards you if you're doing that kind of thing. Okay, I think it's coming up in this chapter. It might be in the next chapter. But anyway, this is the kind of thing that we absolutely have to understand. We cannot go back to the law of Moses, which was a type and a shadow of what Christ did. Christ came to show us, well, the Bible shows us that we cannot live by the law of Moses. The man who does these things will live by them, Leviticus 18, verse 5. And the whole Old Testament shows us that that is impossible. Christ came to deliver us from that. And if we start reimposing that on ourselves, we are the ones that are making the serious error. Or if we start going to other religions and trying to find satisfaction that has already been provided by Christ, we are making a serious error. God will not tolerate that. So please keep that in mind. And then we'll go ahead and go on. Where was I? Um, uh, yeah, nobody's going to complain about how unfair they will, the Lord will be. We'll all be satisfied about that. Okay, so um, life application. How shallow we are. I think I might have said this already. I'll read it again. To uh, We're on verse... We're doing what? Yeah, we're, we're 11 right now. We're on 11 right now. Okay. I got, oh, so what? Yeah, Phobos. Okay, yeah, I was going back to 10. Okay, I got myself off on a tangent there. And um, uh, there's no condemnation in Christ. And then I said, um, uh, where was I? Persuade. Oh, yeah. Okay, there we are. Um, no judgment coming upon them. He was showing that they are not above the people that they preach to. And then I made the point about Peter. That's why I got a little off on that, but here we go. And this lesson needs to be conveyed now by all who preach and teach the word. In many ways, the Christian world has come to believe that getting saved means that judgment is behind us and all is peachy between us and the Lord. Okay, and I've already said that. I just want you to understand it is not peachy because our actions will be judged by the Lord. Okay, so we're going to go to life application. Getting saved is not the end of our responsibilities before the Lord. Rather, it is the beginning. We will all be judged when we stand before him, and that judgment will be based on our adherence to his word. That is our instruction manual. From the time that we were saved, are the losses of eternal rewards worth ignoring his guidelines? Each one of you has to ask that or answer that question yourself. I can't do it for you, but what are you going to do with your days? What are you going to do with your time? What are you going to do with the money that you make? What are you going to do with all of the things that encompass who you are as a human being? Because it's all going to be judged, every single bit of it, okay? And that's not to scare you. It's just reality. As I said, we shouldn't have terror as that word is translated in the New King James Version. We should have reverent and awesome fear of the Lord. You are not going to be judged for condemnation. That is behind you. But you should have enough sense in your head to say, I'm going to put the Lord Jesus first, and I'm going to put away all of the other idols in my life, and I'm going to put away all of the other things that are not of value in this life, and I'm going to pursue Christ. Okay, 512. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Okay, there you go. Based on the words of the previous verse, his detractors could say, there he goes again, boasting about himself as one of the apostles. But this is not the case. It is a continuation of the defense that he made all the way back in chapter 3, starting in 1 through 3. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of con 
commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh that is of the heart. And then once again, we read the verse that we're in right now. It says, for we do not commend ourselves again to you, as he was speaking about, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance, not in heart. So he's repeating himself from those first three verses of chapter three. There was no need for self-commendation because those in Christ who came to Christ and who were then schooled in Christ testified to their apostolic ministry. Now he takes that thought and offers it to them to give you opportunity to boast on our behalf. If the Corinthians are their epistle, then they should feel free to make a boasting of them. Thus, there was no need for Paul and the others to commend themselves. Again, this is something he already addressed to them at the beginning of the letter. Way back in the first chapter in verse 12, he says this, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end. And then verse 14, as also you have understood us in part that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. To complete the thought of this verse, he says that their boasting is so that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. The term in appearance is literally in face. The work of Paul and the other apostles was written on the heart, whereas the work of the others was external. They boasted of their eloquence, their superior knowledge, the names of their schools, or whatever other external signs of their greatness. Paul will speak of these people directly later in the epistle. They were superficial. And they were false teachers. Life application, Paul had personal defects. He wasn't known as an eloquent speaker, and he certainly wasn't flashy. Instead, he made tents to support himself and shared the gospel freely to all. Those who opposed him may have been visually appealing and very well-spoken, but they missed what was important, holding fast to God's word. Now think of those in the world today. Whom would you rather trust with the message of your eternal destiny? And I'm not trying to make a comparison to this church, okay? I'm just going to make a general comparison of all churches. Uh, you got churches out there that have very flashy speakers. They have people that never utter or stutter a wrong word, okay? They have big stages. They've got lights. They've got great music. And they may not say anything of value during the hour and a half you're there. I've been to churches like that. I can't tell you how many times, all right? And then you've got little churches in the middle of nowhere where the guy stands up and he cherishes this word. And he keeps it in the proper context. He keeps it in the right dispensation. And there might be 15 people in the church. All right, which would you rather be in? They don't have any coffee. They don't have any air conditioning or heating. It's The windows are open and the mosquitoes are coming in and biting you. I'd rather be bit by the mosquitoes. Okay, that's just the way it is. You have to understand that there are people out there that do not have your best in mind. They have their wallets in mind. They have big churches in mind. You know, and as I've said, like the prophecy update, if I wanted to get 4 million hits a week, it would be very easy to do so. Just make up a bunch of stuff, scare people, and not have any basis in reality and call it a prophecy update. 
and it would take me 15 or 20 minutes to do it and I could get 4 million views a week. I guarantee it. Maybe I'll start another channel and we'll try it and see if it works, okay? <laughs> but, you know, I'd probably spend 40 hours a week getting information for the Prophecy Update. Maybe not that much, but it's a lot, okay? And it takes a lot of time to put it in there. And then you find something that happens at the end of the week and you got to take all that out and you got to throw away three hours of work there. But I'm not going to make stuff up when I give you a prophecy update. It's going to be read from an article that has been researched. It's going to be, if there's somebody that gives an article and they quote another article, I'm going to go back to that article. This is what I'm going to do because I don't want to give you something that isn't proper. And I don't care if I get 400 views a week. It doesn't make any difference to me. I never look at the numbers. I have no idea what they are. I don't need people telling me what they are. All I know is that I've done my best in that. Okay? Go watch whatever you want with Prophecy Updates, but make sure that you're discerning in that particular aspect. It's important because there's a lot of stuff out there that people make a lot of money off. Every hit on YouTube, they get, check, if they have a banner down at the bottom or if it starts with an ad, they're getting paid for that. The more people that they can get to click on that, the more they're going to make. You're not going to see a banner or an ad ever at the Superior Word. It has never happened, and it's not going to happen, okay? That isn't the intent. And once the money starts coming in, then you say, well, I got, you know, I need to start paying more. And it becomes a self-sustaining thing. I'm not going to get into that, okay? I have four part-time jobs, and I do them every single day of the week except Sunday. And that's fine. Hedico works. We're okay. Anyway, just figure out what you want to do and make sure that it is with the right intent, Okay. Um, Paul will speak of these people, as I said later in his epistle. They were superficial, false teachers, okay? And I was talking about Paul after that. Those who opposed Paul may have been visually appealing and very well-spoken, but they missed what was important. Now think of those in the world today. Whom would you rather trust with the message of your eternal destiny? Does a flashy presentation really matter at all when it is put in this perspective? you got to decide. Okay, 513. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Okay, that's pretty good there. All right. This continues Paul's thought of the previous verse. To the Corinthians, he said that he wanted to give an opportunity to boast on our behalf. How could they do this? Paul explains that when charges are leveled against him as an apostle, they could use the argument in this verse. It appears that some had said that he and the other apostles were either nuts or at least on their way to the funny farm. This is what he means by beside ourselves. It is a charge that was made against Paul way back in Acts 26. Let me read you what they said to him there. Yes, that's exactly the verse. Okay, Acts 26, verse 24. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Even more, it is a charge that was levied against the Lord. Two such examples. One is found in John chapter 10. Let me take you there. Wow. Okay, John chapter 10, and it's in verse uh, 19. They said, Therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, He has a demon and he is mad. Why do you listen to him? And then way back in the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 3, it says, Let me get there. Hang on. Three, where are we? Yes, that's two. Okay, 320. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Paul says now that if they were beside themselves, it was for God. 
In other words, their zeal was so strong for upholding the truth of God that others may say that they were out of their minds. On the other hand, for those who understood their position and their zeal, they knew that they were of sound mind. And if of sound mind, it was for the sake of those they ministered to. Therefore, they could easily defend Paul and the other apostles being given this opportunity to boast on their behalf. He isn't nuts, except about Jesus. He isn't crazy, but if he is, it is about the gospel. He is as right as rain. Life application. Do you know someone who is a bit eccentric and yet is totally sold out to the Lord? I know a couple of them. Let the eccentric be overlooked. There is genius behind the zeal for Christ. Martin Luther, you know, he was, people thought he was crazy and he loved the Lord. He may not have had the best doctrine in the world, but you know what? He came out of a very bad place. He had all that bad doctrine instilled in him growing up and it took him a long time in his life to formulate his doctrine. And, you know, back then they didn't have all of the wealth of information that we have today. I try to give these people in the past a little bit of a pass on some of their poor doctrine. One of the things that Martin Luther is often really condemned about is that you know, he at first really supported the Jewish people. He thought, man, they are the cat's meow, and he could never get a convert. And eventually he started writing very bad things about the Jews, saying, well, they're of the devil and this and that. And he was frustrated. He was completely frustrated, and he did not understand that God was doing something in human history. He didn't see that. He made he, a mistake, though, in trying to convert them. Well, that's right. He should have just made them complete. He should have made them complete. That's right. If he made, if he went and told them that he is the Jewish Messiah, it probably would have worked out. But that wasn't in the the cards at the time, you know. And so uh, people are very easy to second guess people back then. But like I say, right now we have all of the information. If I want to know any point of Calvinism, all I need to do is type it into the computer, and I have it up in less than one second, and I can read about it and say that makes sense or that doesn't make sense. Okay, I have all of this information that I can sort out. And the problem with that is, is that most people don't take advantage of it. We, I was talking to somebody today about the Jehovah's Witnesses, and we were having, he asked me some questions about them. You know, they, they have called on Jesus as Lord, and, but they're naive about who the Lord is. Are they saved? And I said, no, and here's why. And I cut and pasted something right out of this week's sermon. And I said, here, that's what I'm going to be talking to you about on Sunday. Okay, is it? Jesus Christ is God. You can't call on Jesus who is not God and be calling on the Lord. They've called on a false Jesus. So we'll talk about that on Sunday. But you have to understand that just because we are ignorant about something doesn't mean that the information isn't right there. They failed to do their due diligence. It is still as evident in the New World Translation of the Bible as it is in any other Bible. They've corrupted it, but you can get Jesus out of there very clearly if you're willing to look, all right? And then probably what's even better is to say, I'm going to read other versions and I'm going to do my due diligence there. I saw somebody posting about King James Olneyism on his wall today. And I put in two links from a website called wonderfulone.com. Some of you know that one. That's one of my websites. And one of them is the King James Controversy. And the other one is Errors in the King James Version, which I'm up to 4,000 now or something, whatever. And what will happen probably is I will be belittled, I will be yelled at, and I will be defriended, okay? Instead of just reading, just doing the due diligence and saying, is this correct or not, that's probably what will happen. People aren't willing to check things. Instead, they just have something in their head, and they stick with it, and they run with it, and they keep running with it, and it doesn't work that way. You're not going to get any rewards for not using your brain. You have to use your brain, okay? We talked about that in the 
first sermon on doctrine. Theology is hard work. There are things that we are expected to know, and you don't even need the Bible to know them. And once you have the Bible, then you're really without excuse, right? So this is the kind of thing that people need to understand. They need to get into their head. But here we go. We'll go on. 514. For Christ's love, for Christ's apostrophe, apostrophe, yes. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. Okay, for the love of Christ compels us, there's no apostrophe because they changed it, because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died. So it's close, but here we go. Let's see here, 514. There is an ambiguity in the first portion of this verse so that it could read either, for the love of Christ compels us, or for our love for Christ compels us. However, on numerous occasions in Paul's writings, he speaks of God's love for us. So the former is probably the correct rendering. For example, Romans 5.5, Romans 8.35, 1 Corinthians 16.24, and 2 Corinthians 13.14. Go check them out later. Okay, as Paul notes, it is this great love which compels us. It is the motivating factor which impelled him and the other apostles forward. And the reason why is because of understanding the significance of what Christ's love means. Thus, the words rendered as, because we judge this. They judged the importance of what Christ did and were therefore compelled forward, knowing that their ministry was the only thing between those they encountered and salvation or condemnation. This is reflected in the words that if one died for all, then all died. Christ died a substitutionary death. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. Does everybody understand what that means, substitutionary death? The pictures go back to the book of Leviticus. <laughs> the people sinned, and the Lord says, if you did this, you need to bring this type of an animal down to the sanctuary. If you did this, you need to bring this, or this, or this. And you can bring peace offerings. You can bring trespass offerings. You can bring guilt offerings. You know, all these different offerings. But we'll just say somebody sinned, and this is what you had to do. You took that animal down. You placed your hands on the animal's head and you said, I confess that I have done this. I know that I'm guilty, but I am asking you, Lord, to accept <laughs> this death in my place. And then they would cut its neck and out the blood would come and the thing would start, you know, going into convulsions and it would start kicking and it would die. I know it's a terrible thought, but this is the price that we pay for our sin. Something has to take our place. Now you think about that. Those were just pictures. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. They were just pictures of what Christ did. And you think of what he did, forget the animal. Think of what Christ went through for us. That is what's called substitutionary atonement. Christ, I am taking all of the filth that I've done in my life, and I am placing that on you. I am asking you to forgive me, because you are the one that were beaten and bruised and crucified and pierced for me. That's what we need to remember. That is a substitutionary death. And if we can't get that straight, then sin doesn't have any meaning to us. Or we've forgotten that it actually had meaning to us at one point in our life when we were desperate and we realized that. And we forget. Then we say, oh, it's okay. Jesus is my friend and I fist bump him every Sunday at church. It's more than that. It's that he died for our sin and he died for the sins that you and I are committing every single day of our life. That's why he died. And that is the point of a substitutionary death. He did not die for his own sins, but for the sins of the world. However, in order for those sins to be forgiven, the message of Christ 
must be transmitted to people when they hear and believe they are granted forgiveness through his death. The word then all died, the words then all died indicate that whoever they are potential, they are not actual until received. Everybody got that? Whoever is everybody on the planet, but it doesn't actually happen to you until you receive Christ. They receive Christ, he dies with him. This is reflected elsewhere in Paul's writing, such as Galatians chapter 2. He said, For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. The picture is once again what he says in Colossians 2.14. Christ died on the, the cross, but he says the law was nailed to the cross. The law died when Christ died. I'll read it again. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what we're dealing with here. In Christ, we die to sin. It no longer has mastery over us. At that time, the life we live is lived to God, and we are no longer held by the power of the devil. That's 1 John 3, 8. Let me take you there so you remember that. 1 John 3, 8. 1 John. Yes. He who sins is of the devil. What does Paul say in Romans? All have sinned. All have sinned. We are all of the devil. I'm sorry if people can't accept that, but that's what it is. And Jesus says as much in John 3, 18. He who does not believe in the Son is condemned already. Okay? So, he who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Muhammad didn't die to destroy the works of the devil. Buddha didn't die to destroy the works of the devil. None of these religions in the world has any basis in reality because it doesn't address the problem which happened right at the beginning. It is the devil who seduced the woman. The woman got the man to eat and sin entered into the world. And here we are in this pickle right now because of that. There's only one who will ever take care of that problem. That's it. Okay? So we need to remember that. We need to keep remembering that. It is... Um, uh, where was I? In Christ we die to sin. It doesn't have mastery over us. Okay? The life is lived to God, and we are no longer held by the power of the devil. This is the message which so compelled the apostles, urging them forward in order to bring many to a saving knowledge of what God did in Christ for the people of the world. And every time I think of that, I think of our friend. He's been here how many times before he left? Ray Willett. He's over there in Papua New Guinea. He's got how many? Three children, right? Mm -hmm. He's got his wife, and they're over there. They're going to be going into a really desperate place eventually. Right now, they've been transitioning from one to another to get really into their work, but they're going to be out there, and they're giving their lives away because they actually believe what we're re reading right now. How many people go to church and never give a penny for missions ever, right? This is the only way that those people are ever going to hear about Jesus and go from Satan to Christ. That's the only way it's going to happen. It's not going to happen through dreams and visions. It's not going to happen by airplanes dropping balloons. None of that's going to help. They've got to get the word of God in their language into their hands. And without it, it's not going to happen. Okay. Life application. How important are the souls of those you encounter to you? If you're the only person they will meet who could bring them to Christ and you fail to speak, they will face a vastly different fate than they may otherwise have faced. 
if you hadn't simply spoken. Don't withhold the wonderful message of reconciliation. Okay, 515. And you don't have to go to Papua New Guinea. You don't have to go to Papua New Guinea to do it. That's right. You can you know, just see somebody at 7-Eleven and hand them a track. Hey, you know, I think I'm supposed to give this to you today. And it's not a lie because you're supposed to give it to everybody all the time. Got all kinds of tracks around here. Just hand them out. We got them on the table in the back. We got them on the counter over there. We got them on the wall over there. Got millions of them. Hand them out. Let people know the message. And if they throw it away, so what? Somebody, yeah, maybe somebody will pick it up out of the trash. You never know. I mean, who knows? It's that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to simply do it. Tell. Okay, yeah, tell. All right, five fifteen. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Okay, very close. Two words different. This is a further explanation of the words for the love of Christ compels us. As Jesus Christ died for all, he now explains that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Jesus Christ died for all potentially, but he actually only died for the elect. Those who have received Jesus Christ are the elect according to God's foreknowledge. In other words, God knew that they would receive him, and therefore Jesus has saved them. While they live, they should no longer live for themselves, as Paul says, but for him who died for them and rose again. This explains why the apostles didn't go out making a lot of money off of sharing the gospel. It explains why they were willing to suffer persecution and hardship. It explains why they were willing to give all for the sake of Christ. Paul is saying that all believers should have a like attitude. We may have a job and a family, but we are to put Christ above all else. He isn't asking us to give up everything we have, but to live our lives in the proper Christ-centered perspective. He gives this same sentiment elsewhere in his writing several times. One example is found in Romans 6, 8 through 10. Let me take you there. Romans 5, 6. It says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. If you are in Christ and death no longer has dominion over Christ, guess what? Eternal salvation. I just don't understand how people can't... Theology, I'm going to say it at least 10 more times in these doctrine sermons. One plus one will always equal two in sound theology. It will always do that, okay? And we've got another verse here. That was Romans 8. Where was I? Um, uh, 6, 8 through 11. And then the Apostle Peter also shared the same sediment in one Peter sentiment. Not sediment. Sediment is uh, what settles on the bottom of the ocean. Okay. 1 Peter chapter 4. He says in verses, wow, that went too far there. I'm in 2 Peter already. It's a really small epistle there. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2. Let's see here. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Once again, one plus one equals two, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. He doesn't say you can't do it. He acknowledges that you can. He's just asking you to not do it. Okay? You're not going to lose your salvation if you don't. We'll talk about that on Sunday. 
or in four weeks from now. I'm sorry, I keep getting Sundays in four weeks from now because I did four weeks from now in my head today. What I have to do is I have to make all the graphics for the sermon that goes on YouTube, right? You know, if you watch online, it's got all of it. Okay, I have to do that at some point. And then I do that four weeks before because if I get sick, that means I've got four weeks worth of it that I don't have to worry about. So that's why I do sermons 10 weeks in advance. I do the graphics four weeks in advance. I do the poetry for the next sermon a week in advance. So it gets confusing after a while, but I'm sorry if I keep doing that today because I did it today. Anyway, um, let's see here. Life application. Christ died and rose for us so that we could truly live. Therefore, let us truly live for him. Woohoo! 516. Oh, we're almost done with chapter, chapter, no, that's I'm chapter, yeah, no, we got a ways to go. Okay. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Okay, this one says instead of a worldly point of view, it says according to the flesh. Okay, therefore is given to have us think on what has been stated thus far and as a lead into a full explanation of that information. Paul has noted that if one died for all, then all died. He noted then that he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. These words give the basis for the therefore okay and i've got to correct a word here i said basis as an army basis instead of b-a-s-i-s i can't believe i did that anyway because of our having died with christ we should from now on have a different attitude towards others instead of seeing them as simply people whom we interact with by using normal human motives we should regard as paul says no one according to the flesh we are to no longer make superficial judgments but are rather to regard other believers as those for whom Christ died. We have died with him, and we should live for him. Our judgment of others is to be based on our spiritual relationship with him. In other words, we shouldn't look at and regard a person because they're famous, because of their status in society, because of the amount of wealth they have, because of their color, or because of any other external reason. Instead, we should view all people all people based on their relationship to Christ. That's our main motivator. Our regard of others is not, as Paul says, according to the flesh, but according to who they are in a new and spiritual way. To show us what he means, he next says, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. There was a time when Paul saw Christ as a mere human. His idea of who Christ should be was a conquering king over an earthly kingdom. Others may have seen Christ as a great scientist or a man of great philosophical wisdom. Today, Jehovah's Witnesses see Christ as a created being and not the Lord God. Whatever carnal, fleshly, fleshly way we once saw Christ, if we are truly in Christ, we no longer know him in this way. Instead, we see him as our Lord we regard him as the one to whom we are to fix our hopes, our goals, our aspirations, and our eyes upon. Paul once viewed Christ as a dead person who, whose followers needed to be destroyed, but then he encountered the risen Christ, and that all changed. His words about Christ show that our attitude should also be different concerning his followers. We are to regard them first and foremost as saved believers spiritually reborn and valued children because of God of God because of the work of Jesus Christ 
This idea can be beautifully seen in the slave Onesimus. Paul writes these words to about him to Philemon in Philemon chapter 1. Let me take you there and just read you what he said. Philemon, it's just, yeah, it's a little little one-page book, but it says in 1, 15 and 16, For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. That's how Paul would like us to look at all believers, okay? Not just those that we like and that we don't like. Look at everybody as a saved believer in Christ first. Though he was still a slave in the flesh, Paul asked his master to regard him as a beloved brother. In Christ, all things are new. This is what Paul is relaying to us in his words here. Life application, who do you show more regard to in your congregation? The handsome, the wealthy, the powerful? Rather than looking at externals, let us regard other believers first and foremost from their position in Christ. Let us look at them as valued brothers and sisters with whom we will spend eternity, because we will. And I know there are people that you say it's going to be a long time before I get to know them, but that's okay. Treat them well anyway. Yes? Could you start that knowing him again, the first line or two of that? Knowing him. I'm reading from the the Bible or from my notes? No, from your notes. What am I reading? Something about knowing him. You said, uh, uh, we have known Christ according to the flesh. It's a, he is a disciple is saying we've known him as a real person here on earth. Yes. That's exactly. Are you questioning that? Is that what no, you're saying? No, no, I just wanted you to... I, I can't find it. I'm looking for it, and um, we're to regard other. I don't know. He's, anyway, I, it's something about Christ in the flesh, and I, I'm trying to find it. And you're going to have to go back and watch the video again. I'm sorry, <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. I used the word Christ at least 27 times in that one that one thing, and I have no idea which one. I, you want me to read the whole commentary again? This was this was way back. Way back there. Okay. Talking about knowing people by the spirit. Knowing. Okay. Anyway, I, I, give me a, an email and remind me, and I will figure out what I need to tell you because I've got Christ in that that one commentary so many times. It'll take me an hour. To, I'm going to have to reread the whole thing. What's that? Question was, did he know him? Did Paul know him? Did he know him? Was he, uh, you know? Well, he perceived him in the flesh. He perceived know him like I know you. I have no idea. The Bible doesn't say. Well, he said, here, I know him according to the Jesus flesh. appeared to him. Yeah, well, no, 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 no. What he is saying, if he says, I knew Christ according to the flesh, it means he knew about him, his humanity. This is the guy that did all of these things. He died, and I am not going to follow him. He wasn't saying he knew him personally. I don't think that, it, it, the Bible never says that Paul knew personally. Now, he may have seen Jesus because he was, you know, one of the Pharisees. And so he probably dealt with him in some relationship or another, but it never says in the Bible that he knew him personally. But didn't okay. Jesus appear and say, Saul, Saul, why do you Yes, that was afterward. That was afterward. Okay, he knew him according to the flesh. He knew him according to the person he was. And that's the way I did once. I knew Jesus as a guy. Just right? By reputation. By reputation. That's what it's saying. And then all of a sudden we know him according to who he truly is. I think that's what you're asking about. Okay. But it, the Bible does not ever put Paul and Jesus in the same room. It, it doesn't do that. So what he is saying is probably I knew him in this way, this manner, according to the flesh. Or how does it say it in yours? Because yours was different. Uh, let's see, Chris. Uh... 
Regard Christ in this, okay. Verse 16. In a worldly In a worldly way. Okay, when I say according to the flesh, that doesn't mean personally, as in I see you in the flesh. It means in a worldly way. Paul saw him in a worldly way. He's just a guy. I'm going to persecute his followers, right? That's all that he had on his mind. That's what he's talking about. So, yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll go back and reread this, and I'll send you an email on that, but I'd have to read the whole commentary again. All right. Okay, 17. You should have stopped me right when I was saying it. Next time, do that. It's fine. It's fine. That's what we're here for. <laughs> 17. Therefore. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Man, I'm telling you, what an uplifting verse. Holy mackerel. <laughs> therefore, builds upon the thought which was also a therefore from the previous verse. Paul continues to expand on the meaning of our new life in Christ. In order to do so, he says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Being in Christ comes by faith in him. This is the thought of Romans 10, verse 9. When we believe, we are saved. Everybody got that? There's the gospel which is presented. When we believe that gospel, we are saved. That's it. That, that is the gospel. We'll talk about that when we get to there. What is the gospel? And the way I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it the same way I did it last week. I'm going to take what is false so that I can show you what is true. Okay? I have to do it that way. Because I can tell you what the gospel is, but there are so many ways that people approach the gospel that sound right. And you think, oh, he sounds right. But there's a problem with it. And the only way you can explain that is by taking what they say and showing you, because we're talking about very minute differences of what people are saying, which make all the difference in the world. Okay. So I will do that. I think it's next week or the probably next week. Uh, the reason, maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, we'll get to it when we get to it. Um, all right. So um, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. As I said, being in Christ comes by faith in him. When we believe, we are saved. At that moment, all it says is when you believe, at that moment, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit according to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. You all should know that by heart. I've said it at least every single Bible study since we've opened. Okay, that is that. This is our baptism of the Holy Spirit. That happens only one time. That's something that happens when you believe in Christ. You are baptized into Christ. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is a one time occurrence based on belief in Christ. From that moment, we are a new creation. God positionally sets us in the heavenly places at that moment. Does anybody know where that is recorded? 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12? 13. Okay, let me read that and see what you've got, because that's not what I was citing, but I'm going to read it anyway. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink in one spirit. That's the first half. I was talking about the second half. Where does it say that we are seated with God in Christ? Uh, it's in Ephesians. That's correct. What chapter? Anybody? Chapter 2. Chapter two. Very good. Does anybody know what verse? Anybody? That's verse 6. Okay. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I'll read the whole thought so you can see the progression of thought. Verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You believe you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That is your baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then at that moment... God, who is rich in mercy, brings you alive, verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, verse 7, that in the ages to come, 
he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Okay, yes. Colossians 3, 1 says, Colossians 3, verse 1. Then if you, there it is. Then if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Because you're positionally there already with him, you might as well seek those things with him. Verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. That's Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Very good. Okay, so uh, that that is what happens. We are sealed with the Spirit. That is your baptism of the Spirit. You don't need to go to a charismatic church and get some type of crazy baptism of the Spirit. It happens the moment you believe in Christ. That is what Paul is speaking of. Okay, from that moment, we are a new creation. He positionally sets us in the heavenly places, as we just read, showing that salvation is a done deal. Okay? The concept of eternal salvation permeates Scripture. Verses such as 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, when looked at objectively, can mean nothing other than this. I think I meant 2 Corinthians 5, 17, but what does 7 say? Um, 2 Corinthians... Oh, let's go back there. What's that? Yeah, okay, so that's not the one. I meant to say 17, and I wrote 7 here which is another problem of mine, getting things wrong. Okay, um, so 2 Corinthians 5.17, when looked at objectively, can mean nothing other than this. To assume that we are a new creation and yet could suddenly become unsaved is unfathomable. From the moment we are saved, old things have passed away. In the Greek, there is an article in front of old things, and so it should be rendered the old things. The things that we once were identified with are no longer applicable to us. This does not mean that we have attained perfection or that many saved people won't choose enormously bad paths to follow. Rather, this is speaking of how we are considered from God's perspective. In him, all things have become new. This is a shadowy mirror of what it says in Isaiah chapter 43. Let me read this to you. Isaiah's speaking about things in shadows, and then the reality comes and is found in Christ. But in Isaiah chapter 43, in verse 18, he says, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. He's doing something new. Because Paul says here that we are a new creation. It is an act of God not of man. Only God can create. Thus, what man does after this moment is irrelevant to the status of the person. He is created anew by God, and therefore what man does no longer has any bearing on the new creation. Paul alludes to this in Galatians chapter 6. Here's what he says in Galatians chapter 6. In verse 15, he says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Okay? It is God who makes new. It is God who seals his redeem. And it is God who will continue to save them until they are brought into his presence. When I said earlier, what man does after this moment is irrelevant to the status of the person. I'm talking about the saved status. I'm not talking about the judgment of rewards and losses. So don't misunderstand me there. The status of the person as saved eternally is done. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, the finality of the decision is his. And once again, it clearly shows the doctrine of eternal sal salvation. As Solomon notes, going all the way back to the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, and hang on, here we go, Psalms 
whoops, after Psalms, before Isaiah, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then you have the Song of Solomon after that. But let's see here. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he says, whoops, too far again. Verse 14, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. Life application by simply by a simple act of faith in Jesus Christ, a person moves from Adam to Christ. We are saved by God and become a new creation. Concerning salvation, we cannot add to what he has done, nor will what he has done be taken from us. That is called the unconditional decrees of God. We're going to talk about that in an upcoming sermon as well. When God makes a decree, it is unconditional and it is forever. He doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth or anything like that. When God says something, when he said that I will save Israel and I will save them forever, it is going to happen forever. Okay, that doesn't mean that all Israel is going to be saved. There are a lot of Jews that are not saved over the past four or three millennia, whatever it is. Okay, what it means is that Israel as a corporate entity will always be a corporate entity. He will always save them as a people. And he has proven himself faithful in that even for the past 2,000 years, and now he has put them right back where he said he was going to do so, and he says they're never going to be uprooted again, and we can be absolutely assured that that is true, okay? When God makes a decree, it is an unconditional thing. It's not a waffling thing. When he says, I will save you, you are saved, okay? We'll get, we'll get to that in a sermon. It'll be more eloquently presented than I just did. Anyway, um, therefore, let us live our lives for him, knowing that our eternal rewards and losses are based on the lives that we live from the moment of our salvation. Good stuff there. God is very faithful. He is wonderful. We may be faithless, just like Israel, but God will always be faithful. He's made the covenant. It is in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. It is therefore without any chance of being violated. He's not going to do that. We may, but he will not. We got to close because it is time. We'll close in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wondrous, magnanimous thing that happened at the cross of Calvary so many years ago. What a glory it is to think on what Christ did and to contemplate what it means to us. And yet at the same time, we have to remember that it was a substitutionary act. We placed our hands on the animal. We confessed over it. We killed it. And that was only picturing what happened with Christ. We confessed our sins over the cross. And we allowed that to happen because of what was necessary to bring us back to you. Lord, thank you for Jesus and what he was willing to do for us. What an honor it is to serve you through him. What is an amazing, what an amazing thing it is that you have done for us. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for all of the wonderful information in your word that tells us that we're secure in him and it's by a simple act of faith. So help us to get that message out. And Lord, you know the people we mentioned at the beginning of the uh, service today, we would ask that you would be with them and help them through their troubles. And Lord, we would certainly pray for the one person that is having trouble with his salvation, of his, the salvation of his father-in-law, that that person would put those things aside and would be secure and not fearful of death any longer. We certainly would pray that that would be the case. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, All right, what am I doing here? Break. There we go.